0: Welcome back, boys and girls, to the Fibre Performance Podcast. This is episode number 23, and we have our special guest, Mike Todorovich. He is here to talk about energy systems, so I'm super fascinated by this topic, and I'm sure you guys are too, but figuring out ways that we can improve our energy system function performance. This is not only good for longevity, but good for you know athletic performance on the field, and um, but I'm going to hand it over to Mike just to introduce himself once again. He came on episode number six with us um, and epically smart guy, genuine bloke, and just an honor to have him on the pod. So Thanks, welcome.
1: Mate. Cheers. Thank you. I'm uh, Dr. Mike Todorovic, Senior Lecturer of Anatomy and Physiology at Griffith University. Uh, and I am the Director of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Education. Uh, and my passion and love is how the human body works uh, with a particular focus on human performance.
0: Awesome. So at the moment, what do you spend most of your time doing? Is it mainly giving lectures or do you spend most of your time educating people on YouTube? So uh, if you guys don't know, Mike uh, and Dr. Matt have a wicked podcast, which is all about explaining biomechanics, um, brain function, everything to do with basically human biology, and it's done in a way that is easily digestible for everybody to understand. So if you haven't checked it out, go check it out.
1: Thank you. I agree. Go check it out. Um, I would say uh, my time is split between the university and uh, my medical education work outside of the university. So my my main job is lecturing, teaching uh, students about the human body at Griffith. Uh, I'm also a researcher. So doing medical research, but also doing research on uh, educating people in the online space, so using social media to teach. But a big chunk of my time is on YouTube. So we've got half a million subscribers on our YouTube channel. We get you know, 1.5 million views on our videos every month, just about how the human body works. We've got our podcast on the same topic, more of a longer form discussion on how the human body works. So we get about 120,000 downloads a month of that podcast social media, you know, on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, putting out small snippets of content on how the human body works. So I think it's both my full-time job and my passion, which is great that you can merge the two together, just talking about how the body works.
0: That's freaking so cool. And I was actually talking about this with a friend the other day, trying to merge together. You've you've put together like your purpose Mm -hmm. and something that helps to facilitate you being happy constantly on a regular basis. So you're feeling fulfilled, you're achieving the goals that you want to achieve um,
1: and you're having a bloody good time doing it. Exactly. Which is perfect. Love it. Love it. And you know what I do, I mean, I don't think I'll ever be able to fully understand how the human body works. That's the thing, you know, like there's going to be, there's an expert in every field and they know a huge amount about their field But the great thing is I don't think I'll ever be able to know how, you know, in completion, how the body works, which is great. I love that because there's always something to learn, always something to push toward, um, which keeps it exciting and keeps the passion and makes it fun. So Absolutely. I love that.
0: Absolutely. Kind of like CrossFit for me, there's always something to work on. If you're not getting better at gymnastics, you might be getting better at running. And if you're not getting better at running, you might be getting better at weightlifting. And then if you're not getting better at that, you might be getting better at swimming. Who knows? So there's exactly. always something to Imagine try.
1: having a job where you've hit your ceiling, you've hit your capacity and you know you've, you're like, there's nothing more for me to do. No wonder people give up and change jobs and go to the next thing.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about energy systems. So could you explain to the viewers and to me um, what energy systems are? Um, Give us a bit of a rundown on each of the energy systems. Um, And then let's um, hop straight into um, explaining how each of them work.
1: No trouble. Okay. So I think we first need to talk about energy in the form of ATP, so I think anyone that's done biology for more than 10 minutes has heard the term ATP, which stands for adenosine triphosphate, and it is the energy currency of the body. So anytime the body wants to do something, perform some sort of work, they need to pay, it needs to be paid for with ATP. So our body utilizes this ATP to do everything, whether it's muscle contraction, whether it's for neuronal function, whether it's for hormones to be produced and released, it needs ATP. And so the body needs to create it, just like us with our bank accounts. We're going to have a certain amount in our bank account, uh, but we use it and we spend it and we need to make more of it. And the body's exactly the same with their ATP. So at any one moment, so l- right now your body probably has around about 100 to 200 grams of ATP just stored in it. Now that sounds like you know, a fair bit, but if I were to get you right now to do a maximal, high-intensity, all-out sprint. You'd use that up in about two seconds. It's crazy. Right? So it's, crazy. it's all, all done. And it's a strange thing to think about. So the bank account of the body, it's, it, it, it doesn't invest highly in its ATP and store it. But the good thing is it's really good at making it. And so the body has all of these redundant, what we call energy systems, that it can use to replenish that ATP. And they're so efficient that if you were to do that all-out sprint, you would never go below 50% ATP.
0: Wow. It's right? always just pushing it back in.
1: Always just making more. So it gets activated in milliseconds. So even though it takes two seconds to get rid of that entire store, you're never going to get rid of that entire store ever. doesn't matter how hard you work out, you're not going to get rid of all of your ATP. Your energy systems are that efficient. And there's three major energy systems or distinct energy systems that we could talk about. But it's important to say that none of them work uh, exclusively from one another. And this is something you and I have spoken about before. They're all activated at all times, just to varying degrees depending on the type of uh, activity you're doing. So if we now focus specifically on performance and exercise and then use that as the context of our discussion, the three main energy systems are the phosphagen system, the anaerobic respiration, which the phosphagen system is a part of, but anaerobic respiration is the second, uh, which is the glycolytic pathway, and I'll talk more about that. And then the third is the aerobic respiration, um, which is oxidative phosphorylation. So they sound complex, big terms, but if we break it up, the very first one, the phosphagen system, this is short duration short bursts, zero to 10 seconds of intense exercise, you are utilizing this system. And the system uses creatine, which I think anyone that does exercise has heard of creatine before. Uh, Creatine holds onto something called phosphate. And I said ATP is adenosine triphosphate. The way that ATP gives us energy or allows for us to perform work is that you've got an adenosine molecule with these three phosphates off the side of it. If you snap off a single phosphate, energy is released from that. So you go from ATP, adenosine triphosphate to adenosine diphosphate to two. And that's where the energy is released, going from triphosphate to diphosphate. What creatine in the body does is it holds onto a phosphate. So that when you use ATP and go from ATP to ADP, if you want to make more ATP, it needs its phosphate back. Creatine holds onto that phosphate for us and goes, here you go. And it allows for us to very quickly replenish our energy stores, our ATP stores. And so that's the phosphagen system. You go and do your 100-meter sprint. The first couple of seconds, you're using up that ATP. It drops, but luckily we've got the creatine holding onto the phosphate called phosphocreatine. It says, hey, here's that phosphate you're missing, and it replenishes that ATP. Cool. Super quick, super fast, high intensity, um, short duration. The second one that we have sort of gets, and I don't want to say gets activated at this point, but works more predominantly after 10 seconds to around about two minutes. Again, high intensity workouts or exercises. And this uses the glycolytic pathway. So basically it takes carbohydrates, glucose predominantly, and it breaks glucose down through around about 10 odd steps into something called pyruvate. And in that process, it produces two ATP molecules. So you can make energy just from breaking carbohydrates down to something called pyruvate. Cool. At the same time, it produces these energy storing or these energy producing molecules called NADH. And NADH is something that a lot of people have probably heard about, but probably don't understand very well. I'm one of those. You're one of those?
0: Because I, I think of NADH, I'm just like, okay, so that's a type of energy energy in itself. I don't know. I, I, I heard it as energy, but I was like, well, what's the difference between NADH and ATP? Yes.
1: Yes. And that's the question that I get all the time. So NADH is more of a shuttling molecule to ultimately help us produce more ATP. So I'll get back to it in a sec, because cool. once I go to the third one, I can then talk more specifically about what it does. So with this second one, the, the glycolytic pathway, it's anaerobic, meaning no oxygen. You don't require oxygen to produce this ATP. Going from glucose to pyruvate, net ATP, two. It actually uses two and creates four. So the net is two. Cool. Um, and then it creates this NADH, which we'll talk about in a sec. Sure. Uh, It can also use lactate for energy as well at the same time. So if you don't have any oxygen and you need to create a lot of ATP very quickly, you go through this glycolytic pathway to pyruvate and then that pyruvate can turn into lactate. And what the lactate ultimately does, two major things, it's a buffer, which means that if there's any acid in the system, which we'll talk about in a second, it buffers it out. Uh, which is very good for exercise and performance because a big rate limiter for us being able to perform exercise or maintain performance at a higher level is the acid in the system. So if we've got too much acid, muscles just don't work. So it's one of the reasons why we hit fatigue is because of the acid that's produced. Lactate buffers that out, just mops it up. But at the same time, it helps replenish the NADH in the form of something called NAD+. Let's just bench that for a second and we'll explain what that means. Now, if you start to do exercise greater than two minutes, you can try and maintain a high intensity. But as you know, as an athlete, maintaining, you know, maximal VO, you know, VO2 max at 100% or just maximal output, really hard to do for over two minutes. So generally speaking, over two minutes, it's moderate intensity just because that's what the body can do, uh, and it's aerobic exercise. So we must have oxygen in this process and it produces a huge amount of ATP for us. So while the phosphagen system helps us replenish ATP through creatine and then the anaerobic respiration through the glycolytic pathway allows for us to produce ATP, not a lot, but it's quick. This aerobic respiration using oxygen allows for us to produce huge amounts of ATP over a longer period of time. So it's not quick, but it's really good at producing heaps over a longer period of time. And what it does is it piggybacks off the back of that glycolytic pathway going from glucose to uh, pyruvate. Then it takes that pyruvate and turns it into something called acetyl-CoA, which goes into the Krebs cycle, produces some ATP through this process, but ultimately produces more NADH. Now the question is, what is this NADH? All right. So NAD, we've probably all heard of NAD because there's a supplement that people can purchase called NAD, NAD+, or NMR. It's got a whole bunch of different names to it. At the moment, and I'll just say this as an aside, the evidence isn't super strong for supplementation of NAD basically. Um, there's been some positive studies out there with animal models taking it, but at the moment, it's not something that I would personally take because I just don't think the evidence is necessarily out there for it. But NAD is super important in the body. So NAD+, what it does is it steals from, so I said glucose turns into pyruvate and it's 10 odd steps. Throughout these steps, the glucose molecule is just slightly changing. It's getting rearranged. It's a it's a six-carbon molecule with a bunch of hydrogens and oxygens. And it just gets rearranged and things get changed ultimately. It splits into two at one point. Throughout this process of change, NAD plus will come along and it will steal an electron from it and it will steal a hydrogen from it. And a lot of people you know, like, what the hell does this mean? So When you steal an electron from something, every single atom that the body is made out of, and the body is made out of trillions upon trillions of atoms, all atoms, whether it's hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, whatever, as you go through the periodic table, they all have electrons associated with it. So if you just take a basic atom like hydrogen, the very first one on the periodic table, it's made up of just a couple of things. A proton in the middle, which is a positive, and then one electron flying around the outside of it. That's what makes hydrogen number one. It has one proton, one electron. You look at helium, which is the next atom or element on the periodic table. It's number two. It's got two positive protons in the middle, two negative electrons flying around the outside. No idea about that. There you go. And you just keep moving through. You go to helium, which is number three. Hydrogen, Sorry, hydrogen, helium, lithium, sorry, is number three. Three protons in the middle, three electrons around the outside. Okay. You can, or the body can, depending on the type of atom, steal the electrons away. You can't steal protons because they're right in the core. They're holding onto them too tight. You can't take it. If you were to take a proton, you actually change the element. So you, if I were to steal a proton from helium, it turns into a hydrogen, right? So it's a totally different thing. So we can't do that. At least our body can't. But what we can steal are the electrons. Now, if I steal an electron from an atom, it's going to change its charge. Because generally an atom is neutral charge. So let's just take uh, hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. Let's take oxygen, for example. It's number eight. It's got eight positive protons in the middle, eight electrons flying around the outside. If I were to steal one electron from oxygen, it's going to have seven negative electrons, but eight positive protons. So it's got one net positive charge associated with it. So that's going to be an O+ for example, or I could give it an electron and it's going to be O negative because it's got one additional negative electron. The point I'm getting across is the body can steal electrons and this is called oxidation. So anytime you hear the term oxidation, and this is how I remembered it in my undergraduate, think of the term LEO, L-E-O, loss of electrons is oxidation. That's all it means.
0: Interesting. So You've just explained oxidation to me. I had no idea.
1: There you go. It's just when certain chemicals steal electrons. Now, what's the purpose of stealing electrons? Well, it can be to the benefit of the body, which it is in the energy systems. NAD plus will steal electrons from glucose. Um, But it could be to the detriment of the body Mm because reactive oxygen species steal electrons as well. These free radicals? These are free radicals. So oxidative stress? That's right. Cool. So, this is the thing, is that things that steal electrons can be good, can be bad, right? Depending on the context. And in actual fact, free radicals can be good to a degree. It's, everything's about dosage, sure. right? If you've got too much of something, it's going to be bad. We'll talk about the free radicals and oxidative stresses in a sec. NAD plus steals the electron, but at the same time steals a hydrogen as well, that first atom on, on the periodic table. And it creates NADH. Right? Because it was NAD+, plus, stealing an electron gets rid of that positive charge. So that's gone. It's just NAD now. But stealing a hydrogen, it's now NADH. Yep. Right. So now we've got NADH. So what NAD plus does, steals electrons and hydrogens. This is important because it carries them into the mitochondria, specifically to the membrane of the mitochondria, and it hands the membrane of the mitochondria, what's called the electron transport chain. So it's called the electron transport chain is it takes those electrons that the NADH has stolen from glucose and it plays hot potato with them. So there's all these proteins embedded in the membrane of the mitochondria. And when the NADH hands the first protein, the electron, it goes, oh, it gets excited, throws it to the next one. When it gets excited, it then takes the hydrogen that the NADH stole and pumps it into the middle of the membrane of the mitochondria. So two things happen here. Those proteins get excited and pass electrons across and hydrogen gets pumped into the middle of the membrane. Why? It's now creating this gradient. You've got huge amounts of hydrogen in the membrane space of the mitochondria And at the very end of this electron transport chain is something called a pump. It's called, well, it's called an ATP synthase. And it takes the hydrogen and everything in biology is about maintaining balance and equilibrium. So if you've got a high concentration of something on one side of a cell compared to another, like hydrogen, it wants to balance it out. And it does so by telling that hydrogen to go back down its gradient to the other side of the membrane. When it goes down to the other side of the membrane, it creates energy. So by going from a high concentration down to a low, think about if you went to the top of a slide, right? Going from high to low, you just let go. You don't have to do anything, but movement occurs. Energy is created by you going down the slide. Mm. So energy is created by the hydrogen going from the space where it was just pumped into down back into the mitochondria and it produces ATP by leveraging that concentration gradient. And that is how the electron transport chain produces ATP. That's how aerobic respiration... Now, the question is, where does the oxygen come in? As those proteins play hot potato with the electrons, something ultimately needs to steal that electron right at the very end, and that's oxygen. So, Mm. oxygen will steal that electron, but it can create reactive oxygen species in doing so. And so... Through aerobic respiration, we produce a huge amount of ATP, but we can also produce free radicals or oxidative stresses, which is good for us. It's a signal to the body saying, you're exercising, this is great, Let's, and that oxidative stress that's produced tells muscle to grow. It tells the cardiovascular system to become more efficient. It tell, it's a signaling molecule to say all, all of these things, but you can actually overproduce the oxidative stresses, and then it can become detrimental. To the body. One of the reasons why we get muscle soreness is because of the oxidative stress that's produced from all this oxygen and free radicals from that electron transport chain, for example. Interesting. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Okay. I would
0: have to sit down and go over that like 10 times, but. There's it, a lot in it. There was a lot of light bulb moments there for me where I was like, ah, oh, that means that, ah, oh, that means that. And I had no idea about the elements on the periodic table being in that sequence and order. Yes. I do remember. Vaguely, a long time ago, being told this, but then completely forgetting it when I left school.
1: It's all about the context, right? If it's not told to you in a context that's relevant or makes sense or is interesting, then of course you're going to forget.
0: Exactly. So that's okay. That's super fascinating. What I want to ask you now is, we have these three energy systems. I basically two of them being um, without oxygen, one being with oxygen, and they're all working. Together in synergy, but at different varying ratios, depending on what the task is at hand or what the body is trying to do. Is there a way, when we train, we obviously are looking for adaptation. If we were to train on a regular basis, say looking to, as a, let's say a 400 meter sprinter. So Mm -hmm. we're going to be trying to have our anaerobic or glycolytic system working more efficiently what would the process be for that system to work more efficiently so is it a faster turnover is it having more abundant mitochondria is it having more abundant cells is it having more muscle is it having more storage for creatine is it having more storage for uh NAD what's the what's the
1: the answer is yes
0: okay cool <laughs> what would the um what would the um what would the the, uh, the adaptation look like in the body to be better at the 400 metres if I started from a complete scratch yep. and then trained for the 400 metres over 12 months? What, cool. would, what would some of the things look like?
1: Yep, great question. So to begin with, like you said, beautifully, all of these systems work simultaneously. When you go and start to do a 400 metre sprint, you're using that phosphagen system with the creatine, you're using the glycolytic pathway and you're going to be breathing. So you're taking in oxygen and your mitochondria will be producing ATP through aerobic respiration. But the predominant one in that 400 meter sprint will be obviously the phosphagen, but that'll go within that 10 seconds, right? And then it'll be that glycolytic pathway. So by definition, the glycolytic pathway leverages carbohydrates. That's, ha- that's what it uses. Carbohydrate and I don't think that this is an inflammatory statement to make, but if you want to do high-intensity exercise, you need carbohydrates. Yeah. That's just, that's just what it is, right? Um, that carbohydrate is going to be the fuel for high-intensity exercise, whether it's short-term or longer-term, it's carbohydrates, And so the glucose will be broken down through the glycolytic pathway to produce that ATP. And so the quantity of carbohydrates that you are fueled with will determine, first of all, how much ATP you make in that moment. And so while carbohydrate metabolism uh, to produce energy is fast, it doesn't produce as much as fat. But that's the beautiful trade-off, is that if you're doing high intensity and you need energy quick, carbohydrates. If you are doing lower intensity, but you need more energy long-term, you use fats. Both do oxidation, ultimately, which if we go into that aerobic side, meaning electrons are stolen from both fatty acids and from carbohydrates, and those electrons are given to NAD plus to make NADH, and the whole process goes through. Um, it's just that we can make more from fatty acids. But when you're talking about the 400-meter sprint, this is sub two minutes. This is that glycolytic pathway predominantly. The rate-limiting step is going to be the carbohydrate fuel that you have available, but it's also going to be a whole range of other things that you did mention. So your mitochondria in regards to the mitochondrial density within the muscle. So we're talking muscle specifically, right? So... All of these metabolic processes occur in all metabolically active cells. doesn't matter what cells you're talking about. It's going to be in the liver, the eye, the whatever. But we're talking about muscle because we're talking about performance. Your muscle stores huge amounts of glucose. It's like 300 odd grams. So there's about half a kilo of glucose stored in your body at any moment in the form of glycogen. So glucose isn't stored as glucose. It's basically snapped together on top of each other like Lego blocks to form glycogen. That's all. all it is. Bundle a, l-
0: a bundle of glucose.
1: That's it. It's just a bundle of glucose. And the liver stores it. The muscles store it, and the kidneys store it. Um, and it's muscles is number one. Liver is number two. Kidneys number three. Around about three hundred grams stored in the muscle. The muscle is very selfish in that whatever glycogen is stored in the muscle, it keeps to itself. So it won't break it into glucose and then release it into the bloodstream. It keeps it 100% to itself. The liver is selfless. The glycogen that's stored in the liver, once it's turned into glucose, it pumps into the bloodstream to make it available to all tissues, including the muscle. So at the end of the day, the amount of glucose that the body has available to it for, for exercise, for high-intensity exercise, you probably got an hour's worth of energy in the form of glycogen stored, which is more than you need for a 400-meter sprint. So you're not going to be using fatty acid oxidation. So you can ignore the fats for the 400-meter sprint. You will be using the creatine pathway, and you will be using the uh, glycolytic pathway. So carbohydrates, number one fuel source for 400-meter sprints in that sense, and creatine phosphate as well. But the other things you need to be aware of, like we were saying, was the mitochondrial density. That is important. Um, the way that you manage lactate, because in that 400 meter sprint, you will want to create, you're going to be using up the phosphocreatine system in seconds, right? Then you need glycolytic. It produces ATP quick, but not a lot. So it starts to create lactate. So to go back to, and I know I'm answering your question no, in a roundabout no, this way. Is great. So we were talking about lactate a little bit earlier. And I said, what lactate does is it buffers acid, which is great because acid is a byproduct that can be produced through muscle uh, through exercise and we can talk about how it, perfect no yeah.
0: keep doing that what is what is the acid is the acid is is that hydrogen
1: yes all right so here's a great here's a great point that a lot of people don't realize is that you look at that periodic table hydrogen helium lithium beryllium and so forth our so if there is a subset of elements in that periodic table that our body needs and uses right so there's only six elements in that periodic table that make up around about 96% of your entire body, right? That's hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, for example. Those four will make up around about 90% of you, right? That's all you are of those four things. But there's other trace elements in your body that's really important, like hydrogen, sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, chloride. You don't have giant amounts of it, huge amounts of it, but the amounts that you have are extremely important. And we often refer to them in the context of them being electrolytes or ions, right? Because they exist in our body with a charge. Carbon doesn't, nitrogen can, oxygen can, um, but these ones, they only exist in our body with a charge. Sodium, chloride, potassium, so forth. When you do a blood test and you get the results back, it doesn't measure carbon and oxygen and things like that, but it will measure sodium, uh, potassium, chloride, and you'll see it as a charge. Na+, Cl-, K+, Mg2+. This is the way it's shown, and they're called ions. Ions are any element on the periodic table with a charge. can be positive or negative. That charge simply says... It's either been given electrons or it's had electrons stolen from it. But it's active in that form. All right. When you look at your blood test and you look at sodium, it might say something like 142 millimoles per litre. And you might look at potassium and it might say 4 millimoles per litre. And you can see magnesium and you can see chloride. You can see a whole bunch if you like. But hydrogen is never written in the same way that potassium and chloride and all those are written as millimoles per liter, right? It's written as pH. So all pH is when we think about acids and bases, it's just the concentration of hydrogen ions in a solution. That's it. It's just another way of writing it. And so we have very little hydrogen ions, so H plus in our body in any one moment, but it needs to be in a particular range right? It can't be too much. If you have too many hydrogen ions, your body becomes acidic. acidic. If you have too little, becomes basic or alkalinic. So we need a happy, healthy range. So all that pH is, all that the acid is, is how many hydrogen ions you have in the body, which is just like looking at how many sodium ions or potassium ions or what. It's an ion. It's an electrolyte. So acids are electrolytes. Hydrogen ion, H plus is an electrolyte. And that's an important thing to state. Anything in your body that releases a hydrogen ion, an H+, is termed an acid. An acid is something that releases hydrogen into the the solution, into the blood, for example. Is it like pyruvate? Like pyruvate, yes. So going from pyruvate to lactate, um, and going from lactate to pyruvate, there will be a hydrogen ion that's released and absorbed. Lactate is a base, and the definition of a base is that it absorbs hydrogen ions. A buffer... Is something that can release hydrogen ions or absorb them depending on the concentration in the body. So a buffer is this reversible equation where, oh no, there's too much acid, let's hold on to it so that there's not that much acid in the body. Like there's too many hydrogen ions, it's going to be damaging to the system, let's hold on to these hydrogen ions. Or there's not enough hydrogen ions, let's release it into the system. That's a buffer. And so lactate is a base that can bind and hold on to it, which is great, which is one of the reasons why uh, when you perform high-intensity exercise and the acid is produced, and we haven't said how the acid is produced yet, lactate can bind to it to help buffer the system so that you can continue to perform exercise. But it hits a point where there's too much acid being produced. So if you were to do 400-meter sprint all out and then I were to take your blood and measure it pretty quickly, We may see a pH change, but the buffers are really, really efficient. Really, I mean, breathing is a buffer, Mm. right? Because carbon dioxide produces hydrogen ions, which is weird because you go, wait, carbon dioxide is carbon and two oxygen. There's no hydrogen there. So how does that create an acid? It's because when carbon dioxide, CO2, mixes with the water in your blood, which is H2O, there's a hydrogen in water, right? They come together and they form H2CO3. And it makes it, there's one carbon, two oxygen from the carbon dioxide, and there's two hydrogen and one oxygen. Put it all together, you've got H2, the two hydrogen, one carbon, C, and two oxygen, O2. That's called carbonic acid. So when carbon dioxide mixes with the water in your blood, you create carbonic acid. And I just said the definition of an acid is it releases hydrogen ions into the solution. And that's what Carbonic acid does, it releases hydrogen ions into the solution and makes your blood acidic. So carbon dioxide effectively can make your blood acidic. That's why it's an exhaust. We need to breathe it out. Mm. The problem can come is when we transport it from the cells that make the carbon dioxide to the lungs, it gets in the blood and it makes acid. Luckily, we've got buffer systems that can absorb it. Our red blood cells can hold on to carbon dioxide, stopping that acid from being produced but if there's too much and we hold on to it for too long the blood becomes acidic interesting so that's why our stimulus to breathe is carbon dioxide not is an increase in carbon dioxide not a drop in oxygen it's because too much carbon dioxide creates too much acid in the blood and the problem with it because we haven't addressed that the reason why we don't want the too many hydrogen ions is because it steals electrons It steals it from cells. It steals it from proteins. Things don't work properly.
0: So at the back end of the 400 meters when you're in the last 100 meters and things start to buckle and your form changes and your legs start to get heavy. That's hydrogen ion buildup.
1: Exactly. So you've got, because of the breakdown of the glycolytic pathway from glucose to pyruvate, you produce ATP. You go from pyruvate to lactate. What the lactate does is Remember I said that going from glucose to pyruvate, you produce two overall ATP, but you also produce NADH, which can ultimately go to the mitochondria electron transport chain. The thing is, in a 400-meter sprint, we don't give a crap about it going to the electron transport chain for oxygen and ATP. It's too short. What we want to do is try and create more ATP from glucose to pyruvate. But the rate-limiting step here is you need more NAD+. And so that NADH that's made goes to lactate and lactate can regenerate NAD+. And so the glycolytic pathway can keep going. So the production of lactate, its whole purpose is it doesn't create ATP directly. It just creates that reducing agent, the NADH, and turns it back into NAD+, so that the glycolytic pathway can keep going. So lactate helps not just buffer the acid keeps that glycolytic pathway, that very short glucose pyruvate, glucose pyruvate, glucose pyruvate, and basically bypasses the electron transport chain.
0: And there are a couple of um, vitamins that may come into effect here to increase that pathway or that transition. B vitamins. Yeah. Are they a big part of this? And this is why we've talked about ever since we were kids, you know, our parents giving us like a Barocca or something like before we go run little athletics or go down to the local carnival. It's like, take your B vitamins. Is this why?
1: Yeah, B vitamins are... Intrinsically um, important to all aspects of metabolism. So whether you start from, so if you if you just take the dogma and the, and the typical pathway, you go from glucose through a process called glycolysis to pyruvate. From pyruvate, you can go to lactate, or you can turn into acetyl CoA, which goes into the mitochondria, undergoes the Krebs cycle. From the Krebs cycle, it can go to the electron transport chain and You know we produce ATP and NADH along this entire thing. To create NADH, you need B vitamins. To undergo the glycolytic pathway, you need B vitamins. To undergo the Krebs cycle, you need B vitamins. So they are super important. A lot of people don't necessarily realise that, but you need all the B's from B1 to B12. You need them all in this. They all play a role in this pathway.
0: So uh, for someone who has been, for instance, taking the NMM. Uh, the NAD, NAD+, you might just be better off taking your B vitamins and getting some B2, B3, B12s, making sure you're in high levels of that. So finding foods that have abundance of B vitamins in there to start from all bases to create all these things rather than just taking the end result.
1: I totally agree. You know, these B vitamins are the rate-limiting factors um, often when it comes to these metabolic processes. You you need them. And like you, you said... You need the B vitamins to create the NAD .plus It's it, it's needed. So I would rather take the B vitamins if needed, you know. But it, you know, in the through a dietary means, because we do get a lot in our diet, yeah. G- generally speaking. If if we have the opportunity to eat a nice varied, balanced diet, then you're going to get your B vitamins.
0: Yeah, and so it's funny that you mentioned electrolytes there. So when we're going through a say just the. For simple terms, the 400 meter sprint. Let's just say we are severely dehydrated. Yeah. And dehydration, I think for most people would assume, and for myself as well, dehydration is a combination of not having as much fluid or water or H2O in the system, as well as not having as many electrolytes in the system. So let's just say we were dehydrated. We've we haven't drunk water for a day, a full day, no water at all. We haven't taken in any salts. Um. So you know the sodium, potassium. All the, all the bits and pieces, yep. and we go through and just, and you just say to me, James, run a 400 meters now, and my performance is 10 seconds slower than it would have been if I was super hydrated or five seconds, let's just say. yeah, We get to a limiting factor earlier in our 400-meter effort. Instead of breaking down with 70 meters to go, I start to break down at 150 meters to go. Is this because we have the limiting factor is we don't have enough minerals, vitamins, and material to play with to continue that glycolytic system at the rate we would normally do it. Is that is that the limiting factor here?
1: The limit. So firstly, the point that you made at the beginning is perfect. And everyone needs to understand the fact that hydration isn't just water balance, it's water and electrolyte balance. The whole purpose, no, I shouldn't say the whole purpose, one of the major purposes of electrolytes is it dictates where water goes in the body. Water being H2O, right? If you were to draw it out chemically, you've got two hydrogens and one oxygen. You've got the oxygen in the middle and you've got two hydrogens stuck out either side like a boomerang. So it's not this linear molecule. It looks like a boomerang. The hydrogens have a little bit of a positive charge associated with it and the oxygen has a little bit of a negative charge associated with it, which means Water loves anything with a charge. If it's positively charged, the negative oxygen will be directed towards it. If it's negatively charged, the positive hydrogens will be directed towards it. But the point is that water will move anywhere there's a charge. The great thing is, by definition, ions or slash electrolytes, electrolytes are just the medical term for any ions with a charge, right? Water is going to be directed to any ions with a charge. So sodium is Na+. So water gets pulled towards wherever the sodium is. Chloride, Cl negative, water gets pulled towards that. Magnesium, hydrogen, all of these ions or electrolytes with a charge, water gets pulled towards it. And the thing is that the ions will determine whether the water gets pulled out of the cell or into the cell. And so we need, obviously, water for a multitude of reactions, including the Krebs cycle, including the electron transport chain. We need that water in these processes. Water needs to be split and produced in these processes for it to work. If your water balance is out, then your ability to undergo these metabolic processes are going to be out. But the, the most important thing in this case, particularly looking at the 400-meter sprint, is that, for me, what I think the biggest rate limiter would be are the ions, right? Sodium, calcium um those two particular right so sodium is na plus calcium is ca2 plus so calcium is two positives sodium is one positive these ions exist predominantly outside of the cell and what they do is anytime sodium or calcium jump into a cell that we call an excitable cell so there's three major types of excitable cells or excitable tissues muscle nervous an endocrine. All of these excitable cells or tissues can do nothing. So a muscle that's doing nothing just doesn't contract. A neuron that does nothing doesn't send a signal. And an endocrine tissue that isn't excited doesn't release a hormone. But you can excite them to do those things, to contract, to send a signal, to release a hormone. The way we excite them is by throwing in sodium or throwing in calcium, right? And so if the balance of your ions or electrolytes are off, these excitable tissues aren't going to function properly. So your muscles won't contract properly. Your neurons won't fire properly. Those two things, and we haven't spoken about endocrine yet, those two things alone, the muscle and the neurons, I mean, they're the two major uh, uh, systems of the body that underpin performance. Interesting. You need your nervous system to send fast, adequate, appropriate signals to the muscle tissue. And you need the muscle tissue to contract appropriately and adequately. And that is reliant upon sodium and calcium.
0: So it seems to me that if we want to increase performance, let's just say I was told this morning when I woke up that I was going to my, um, my high school sports day. Yeah. And I wanted to maximize my performance for basically the athletic track and field events. It seems to me that I would need to make sure that just above and beyond anything else after, you know, getting a good sleep the night before is I need to be hydrated. So that's making sure I've got adequate H2O in the system, adequate electrolytes in the system and adequate carbohydrates and B vitamins in my system. They're the four main things that I'm hearing as much as possible. So if you want to maximize your performance on any given day, going and playing sports, soccer, football, surf life saving, whatever it may be. Those range of four things at the right levels for everyone, everyone's very individual, need to be at its at their at their optimal to do work the best or give yourself the best opportunity to achieve good work.
1: Yeah, I totally agree.
0: And now, when we're looking at carbohydrates, I think this is a huge one, especially for people looking to increase their performance, whether they're weightlifter, runner, whatever it may be, carbohydrates. Now, they come in lots of different forms. So we have, um, we have starchy carbohydrates, we have like sugary carbohydrates, and we can consume foods of a broad spectrum of these things. Now, I'm guessing, and this is just me spitballing here, but I'm guessing as we train, and as we adapt as a stimulus or the um the that hormetic effect that we want to produce on our training days, we get better at utilizing our carbohydrates now would this and I'm not sure if this is a question um, that you're familiar with but would would the the hormetic effect or the stimulus effect would that make you know for instance where we process our carbohydrates in the gut would the you know Training and being like, hey, guys, we need carbohydrates, muscles, we need carbohydrates, we need more, we need to produce more energy. Would the gut microbiome change to allow us to absorb more carbohydrates over time to become more efficient at absorbing these because it knows, hey, we're getting stung with a 400-meter sprint every other day. We need to be ready for this. So let's produce particular bacteria or more enzymes to break these down faster because if we do get it, we know that carbohydrates are coming so we change our gut microbiome to absorb these better. Is that, is that a stimulus or is that an effect?
1: Well, that's a good question. And the short answer is, I don't know. Cool. The long answer or longer answer is that the body, like you alluded to, is extremely adaptable. And you're right. If you were to continually do 400-meter sprints, your body becomes extremely reliant on the glycolytic pathways. And so your body's ability to u- store and utilize carbohydrates as a fuel would become better and more efficient. Same thing happens with if somebody were to do more longer, low-intensity endurance races and they were to fuel themselves predominantly with fats, their body would be better at utilizing fats in what's called fatty acid oxidation as a fuel. So your body is extremely adaptable in that sense. If I were to work off first principles of biology, your breakdown of carbohydrates is very good, very efficient, and it primarily occurs first and foremost in the mouth. So saliva has what we call amylase, which is an enzyme, uh, molecular scissors that chop up uh, carbohydrates. I like that analogy. The molecular scissors? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's all they do, right? They just, they take, because we have macronutrients and they get broken down into the micronutrients. So carbohydrate as a macronutrient is a polysaccharide, simply just means many sugars, right? And it gets broken down into disaccharides, which is two sugars, and then monosaccharides, which is single sugars. It's the monosaccharides like the glucose, galactose, fructose. These are the monosaccharides that our body likes to absorb. We absorb them very easy. It's hard to absorb the disaccharides and we can't absorb those polysaccharides. So they must be broken down through the molecular scissors. Um, And amylase is one of the primary molecular scissors that we use. Our saliva contains amylase. One of the reasons why if you were to put a piece of bread in your mouth, don't chew, you just leave it in your mouth, the saliva that you release, soon that bread will taste sweet. And that's because the amylase is chopping up the complex, the polysaccharide, the complex carbohydrate, into the simple sugar, the monosaccharide, which tastes sweet. Glucose tastes sweet. And so then when you swallow it, it will get absorbed not in the stomach. Very few things get absorbed in the stomach, predominantly just water and alcohol gets absorbed in the stomach. Caffeine as well gets absorbed in the stomach. Um, the small intestines will be the primary place of absorption for carbohydrates, which is far, uh, our gut flora is most predominantly in the latter part of the bowel. So I would say that you would absorb most of your carbohydrate before it gets to the bacteria. Now, this is the digestible carbohydrates is what we absorb. The indigestible carbohydrates, which we call fiber, that's the fuel that we'll give for the bacteria. So it's sort of like when you feed your plants at home, right? Uh, Fiber is our way of saying, oh, here you go, guys, this is, this is for you. I can't really use it. Um, I can't digest plant matter the way that a cow can. So, you know, you've got these large mammals like cows, for example, and sheep, and they have huge muscle mass, big size, and they get it all from eating plant material. But they've got the ability to break down certain types of plant material to get the energy from it. We can't, we're very limited. So we can get it from starches, so we can get uh, energy from the carbohydrates of starch and from the carbohydrates of glycogen in in the meat that we eat, but we're very poor at getting it from other types of plant material. But cows and those organisms can because they've got the scissors that can do it. But the great thing is we give that fibre to the gut flora, the bacteria, And they produce other things that are to our benefit. If you look after your gut flora, they're going to produce other chemicals um, that will be beneficial. And these chemicals can be transmitters, so uh, hormones, um, but they can also be other chemicals that work in a multitude of different ways in various areas of the body to our benefit.
0: Like short-chain fatty
1: acids? Absolutely. Yes, short-chain fatty acids is a very important one. Um, So... I don't know if it necessarily answers the question. No, it does for sure. But I think um, your body does become efficient at utilizing a particular fuel, if that's the fuel that you need to
0: use. That's so fascinating. I'm I'm mind blown by it. I love it. I, I think figuring out the way for everybody's so individual, especially when we talk about nutrition, we, we as again, we don't know everything, but everybody is so individual when it comes to preparing for their specific race, if they're, you know, if they're a specialist, which I am not, um, I like to dabble in a multitude of different things. So people tend to ask me, hey, how do you fuel differently from a CrossFit event to a powerlifting event, to a strongman event, to an Ironman event? And I was like, well, I'm kind of like that kind of in the middle type of person where I fuel myself with as many antioxidants as I possibly can. I fuel myself with as many carbohydrates as I possibly can. I make sure I get enough protein in to recover well. Um, and then I eat fat intuitively. And when my body says, hey man, you feel like I feel like I want some almond butter, I know I probably need some fat. So I try and do it intuitively. But like we mentioned before, the things that I tend to focus on is making sure I've got enough water, having some B vitamins, making sure I've got enough um, electrolytes in my system um, and I'm filling up on my carbohydrates and making sure I've got them there because typically most of my work is done between zero and 60 minutes. Yeah. Unless I'm going to go to an Ironman where I'm out there for 10 or 11 hours and then I'll be fueling carbohydrates throughout the event. Yeah. Um, But I am looking to make sure that I have still fat in my system as well. But – it's a it's a fascinating process, which I, I
1: think mean. you've ticked those boxes, man. Yeah. Honestly, like if if your most of your exercise is within sixty minutes and it's at a higher intensity, carbohydrates will be your fuel source, mm. and it all works off those concentration gradients that we we'll, I was talking about earlier. You know, the bio, human body likes to maintain equilibrium, and so glucose most of the time the way that So glucose will go, if we think about the process from ingestion of carbohydrates, it goes from our digestive tract into our bloodstream, from our bloodstream to our liver, from our liver to back into the bloodstream and then to the different tissues of the body like the muscle, for example. The muscle will store it as glycogen and then if it needs to use it, it will use it. Um, Because our glycogen stores are not as great as our fat stores, you know, we've got far more energy stored as fat in the body. It's a backup fuel source, right? So we we store it. It's great because uh, we, it's light. We hold it well. Uh, it keeps us warm. You know, there's other benefits. It it sort of looks after organs, so it can be has a, a protective role. So fat does other things in addition to provide us energy, but it's a backup energy source. Uh, and and so when we look at the the way that the body utilizes these fuels. Glucose will go from the bloodstream into tissues and it does it down a concentration gradient. So for example, if you scull a Coke, right? A liter of Coke, there's a lot of sugar in that Coke. I don't think it's something you would do, but let's just say you did it. Your bloodstream's gonna be flooded with sugar. Not necessarily a problem because that glucose in the high quantity in your bloodstream will just go down its concentration gradient into the cells where there's a lower concentration of glucose until it balances out. Perfect. That's what the body wants. Most tissues of the body, because we always think about insulin, right? Mm. We need insulin for the glucose to go from the bloodstream into the tissues of the body. That's true and not true. It's true in the sense that only some tissues require insulin, other tissues don't. So for example in order for glucose to go from the blood into our brain, don't need insulin. For glucose to go from our blood into our liver, don't need insulin. For most tissues, don't need insulin. But for muscle and fat, because adipose tissue takes takes it in as well, for muscle and fat, we need insulin. So muscle specifically, most of the glucose is going to be held in our muscle tissue. We've got huge amounts of muscle tissue in our body and fatty tissue. It needs insulin. And so that's why insulin's super important, because if people who are diabetics, for example, let's say either type 1 or type 2, type 1, you don't make the insulin, type 2, the insulin is just doesn't really work, it's insensitive, that glucose is locked in the bloodstream. Brain still gets it, other organs, liver still gets it, but your muscles don't get it, and your blood glucose levels increase, you become hyperglycemic, and the problem is that if sugar stays in your bloodstream for too long, it's totally damaging particularly to the smaller blood vessels. So it damages your eyes and you can have problems with eyesight. Damages the smaller blood vessels in your periphery. And so people start to get, you know, problems with their toes and their fingers, you know, things like that. So that's why insulin's important. But the great thing about exercise, and I love telling people this because they don't realize it, is that when you do exercise, your muscles don't need insulin to bring glucose in. It Mm -hmm. bypasses the need for insulin. So people who are type 1 diabetics, for example, or just diabetics, exercise is great because in order for the glucose to go into the muscle cell, it needs a little transporter. In muscle, that transporter is stuck inside. Insulin is the signal to bring it to the surface so glucose can get in. Or exercise is the signal to bring it to the surface to get the glucose in. So you can effectively drop your blood glucose levels even if you're a diabetic through exercise, because the exercise stimulates that to go to the surface. Fascinating! Yeah. I am
0: mind blown by that. That's cool. Yeah. I freaking
1: love that. It's, I mean, this exercise is one of the best things you can do for overall health. I mean, again, everything's dose dependent. You can do too much exercise and it can be detrimental, but mm. exercise leads to positive, adaptive changes system-wide.
0: Well, that's funny you say that, I, and I'm not recommending this to anyone. I'm just going to put the disclaimer out there, but I was talking with someone, oh, I can't remember where it was, I think it was last week sometime, and we were saying, I wonder what the effects or a type of study would look like if we were to take someone who did say a few things bad. Let's say they drank alcohol, they were a smoker, but they exercised. Mm. And then you took someone who wasn't a smoker, didn't drink alcohol, but didn't exercise. Ooh. Who's going to live longer?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And it's
0: a funny thing to think about. It's just like, okay, well, at least if everybody's exercising, you're taking a step forward to longevity. And whether you do a few things here and there that are, you know, vices for you, um, but if you exercise, you're combating probably a large amount of these potential roadblocks that you're going to come into into um, line with down the track somewhere. So exercising for everyone, we highly recommend it.
1: Oh, totally. Uh, I- it it increases longevity, it reduces your risk of cancers. Like you know it's it makes you happy. makes you happy. like you know there's, there's just so many benefits to exercise. we were all made to move, yeah, right? And it's just true. We evolve to constantly move. And the thing is that, and a lot of people don't necessarily realize it, it's not necessary, and I think you and I have had this conversation before. It's not exercise itself that's beneficial. It's your body's response to the stress of exercise that's beneficial. Everything's about your body's ability to adapt to a stressor. Some stresses your body just doesn't adapt to very well, um, and the, the outcome is a detriment to your health, right? So, for example, smoking. People that smoke cigarettes, your body will try and adapt to keep you alive from the horrible hundreds of toxins you're bringing into your body. So it will upregulate antioxidant pathways in your liver. It will upregulate a whole bunch of pathways that try to uh, metabolize and break down all these toxins that are coming in. So your body does adapt to try and help. But at the end of the day, the stressor that you're exposing your body to far exceeds its, the body's ability to adapt to it, and it becomes detrimental. But exercise is one of those things where, yes, it's a stressor in the short term, but the the way the body responds to it benefits the body long term at its baseline. For example, when you exercise, your blood pressure goes through the roof. Like, for example, if you were to exercise as hard as you do, right, and you didn't tell a doctor, there's a doctor behind the door, right? You exercise, the doctor comes in, they say, take my bloods, do my blood pressure, check my heart rate, check all these things. On nearly every level, they'll go, this is, un- you're unhealthy. Lay down. <laughs> right? Yeah. Your heart rate's too high. Your blood pressure's too high. You know, all these, your blood is too acidic. All of these ions are out of whack. Da, 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 da. Okay. But that's because you have stressed the body. But then the body's ability to respond to all of those things long term means your heart rate at a baseline is lower. Your blood pressure at a baseline is lower. Your bo- body's ability to utilize fuels is better. Um, its ability to perform certain um, metabolic functions is better. Like, I mean, it just ticks all the boxes in all these different ways. And what's the
0: best way to recover?
1: Uh, that's a great question. It's a hard question. So I think it depends on the type of exercise. Um, but, you know... One of the reasons why I'm not a popular science communicator, meaning I haven't permeated you know everyone's household, is because the boring stuff is the good stuff. Perfect right? I, love, I love boring. <laughs> get your sleep, <laughs> yep. eat a nice, balanced diet, get your water in and exercise appropriately mm. And I know all those things are boring and people want these extreme drastic things or they want very specific detailed protocols. It's just, well, unless you are at the highest level of, of athletic performance, those little tiny things aren't going to make a difference to you unless you're doing the basics properly. The bulk. And I'm not saying every single night you need to get eight to nine hours. It's not how the body works. Again, body's crazy adaptable. You can go a couple of days and your sleep is off, but... Try to hit your eight to nine hours as often as you can. Don't stress out about it. It's probably going to make you worse worrying about your sleep so much. But just try to do the right things to get that sleep in. Try to do the right things to eat a balanced diet. Again, throughout your entire lifetime, you're going to eat thousands upon thousands of meals. So if you go out and you eat a burger and fries, a Coke or whatever, every now and then, it's not going to do anything. Don't stress about it. It's Don't worry be the one thing. about it's it. It's
0: not going to be the one thing.
1: It's not going to be the one thing.
0: It's funny you mentioned those things because I get asked quite a bit and you probably get asked like, where are your priorities at the moment? Like where, what are you, what are you aiming towards? And at the moment, like you're, you, you're a dad, you've got um, a wife, you've got um, you're the podcast, you're a lecturer at the uni, um, you're doing a ton of stuff. And for me, my priority outside of, you know, some things that I'm about to talk about, Is my business, um, my friends, they're my priorities, like making sure and I'm having fun. But the foundations that allow me to perform those tasks the best are exactly what you just said. And for anyone that's looking to elevate the way that they perform in their day-to-day as a dad, as an athlete, as a business owner... I believe, and this is just from personal experience, is figure out what your foundations are to be as happy as you can, as healthy as you can. And for me, it's maximizing my sleep, maximizing the way that I exercise and making sure I'm doing the exercise that I enjoy. Mm. The other one is making sure I'm hydrated and fueled with the correct water, electrolytes, nutrition. Love that. And then on top of those things, I want to make sure that I'm hanging around good people on a regular basis. So what is my what are my uh, friendship choices like and am I putting myself in a place where people fire me up, people make me happy, people bring me up, they don't bring me down. I'm around positive energies all the time. So yeah. if, I'm, if I'm sleeping well, eating well, exercising well and hanging around great people and I'm in a place, I'm in an environment and like I um, live on the Gold Coast, freaking great, yeah. um, there's, you're setting yourself up for the best opportunity to do well in whatever your purpose is. I totally agree. And I think that's, you know, for me, they're they're my priorities. And then, you know, whether, you know, we we talk about fiber a little bit on the podcast, but we like to talk about more educational stuff, but it'll allow me to put more energy and more emphasis on doing well in fiber if those things are taken care of as priority. Because again, if you are not looking after number one, everything else suffers and you're going to be useless everywhere else
1: man totally agree Uh, it just sets you up to be able to do all those other things and things will pop up which will stress you out there's going to be moments where you can't get the food that you want there's going to be moments where you don't get the uh, amount of sleep that you're after but if your baseline is already really good then those little tweaks and things that pop up they're not going to be that bad for you Mm But if your baseline is poor and you're already at a baseline getting terrible sleep, eating terrible food consistently, not getting your exercise in, all these types of things, these knocks might be more significant to you than they are than they could be otherwise.
0: You just said a word then that it rings true with me for pretty much everything is consistency. Yeah. Whatever you do, consistent on a consistent basis, the little knocks or the the bumps in the road aren't going to shake you off track as much as they would as if you're not consistent.
1: Yeah, and That's I think same with training. Uh, Totally agree. I, one, I think the big thing that we don't focus on, and I think we will be for, as, a, as a society, as a community, and COVID and technology has sort of played this role, is the whole social isolation thing. Um, today, compared to 50, 60 years ago, we have fewer friends. We have fewer people that we can go to and speak with. We have a smaller social group. Um, We see less people. We interact with fewer people. Uh, These are negative to our health. We have evolved to be social beings. The only reason, well, again, I shouldn't be talking absolutes. The main reason why, why humans are so successful is we're social beings. That's it. Division of labor. If you can't live out by yourself and be the butcher, the cook, the protector, that you can't do, you know, make all the, you can't do all the things. We have to say, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this. And we have this division of labor and we work as a community. Basically, uh, if I use a biology term, a syncytium. So a heart heart muscle, the millions of heart muscle cells work together as though they're one. That's called a syncytium. Unity. Unity. And that's how, humans as an organism, as a society, as a community, that's how we work as as one. But we've got technology and we've had COVID and it sort of pushed us into these little boxes and isolated us. It's separated us Mm. and it's to the detriment of our Mm. health.
0: It's funny you say that. And the reason why I said unity and separation is I'm reading a book at the moment for anyone that is interested in something a little bit different wildly cool book. I actually resonate with it a lot. It's called Reality Unveiled yep. and it talks about unity and separation and ways that we can kind of look at working together as a whole, as one, rather than separating ourselves. And it just gives you a whole new perspective on the way to look at things. Um, yeah. And it's just fascinating read. So if anyone wants to read a cool book, it's a very easy read. I'm not a huge reader. I'm a big listener, but I'm actually reading this book and I... I'm fascinated by it.
1: Yeah. So social interactions, right? Yeah. Like you you need to be around people that make you happy. Mm, Exactly. You enjoy being around Mm. and do it as often as possible.
0: And I'll I'll add to that before we wrap this up as well, that uh, happiness factor um, as well. I should have said this as well because this doesn't come under, it 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 would affect the biology, but I would rather go into competition making sure I was 10% less fit that made sure that my nutrition was on point that day. Made sure my hydration, electrolytes were on point that day. Made sure um, my sleep was on on point. But also the other thing was go into the competition happy. Yeah, that affects me so much. I'd rather be, I'd rather have ten percent less training time in my training block leading into the train, leading into it, knowing I was going in happy rather than going and feeling upset, angry, frustrated, um, and uh, not confident.
1: Totally. I mean, think about all the things. We, everything we do in a way, we strive for happiness, for joy. Mm. And, you know, it's as as somebody who, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I want to be happy. We always think, once I do this, I'll be happy. Once this is finished, now I can be happy. And we sort of give ourselves these arbitrary goals of happiness when you don't need that. It's, it's, it's not a destination, to be cliche, happiness isn't a destination, mm. right? Uh, and I think we all need to be mindful of the fact that we can be happy now in the, can, process. in the process that's right enjoy the process it's about being mindful about what you're doing Um, enjoy the process the process can be hard it doesn't mean it can't be happy you can't be happy while doing it Um, so i think people just need to stop thinking forward and stop thinking back so much and start thinking now Yeah. because that's all we've got is now i know it's moving into the the philosophy of it but I it's just that's that's it
0: fascinating. Well, mate, I think that's a great thing to wrap this up on. Mate, thank you so much. You've just explained so much to me that I had no idea about, and that's probably my own fault for not listening in year 12 biology. (laughs) (laughs) But I really appreciate, guys. That was episode number 23 with Dr. Mike uh, talking about energy systems. Hope you
1: guys enjoyed it and look forward to seeing you guys next time.